In the Missouri General Assembly, Democrats are largely concentrated in districts in St. Louis and Kansas City. The exception is Boone County, where Representatives Kip Kendrick and Martha Stevens represent the city of Columbia in the Missouri House. The two Democrats joined me at KBIA's studios in Columbia to talk about life under Republican rule and the 2018 legislative session. That's what's coming up next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a host who just ate a great salad at Ingredient Restaurant. I am that host, Jason Rosenbaum, the interim political editor with St. Louis Public Radio. I am in Columbia, Missouri, where I lived for almost seven years. Nostalgia is is flowing through my veins right now as I talk in KBIA's beautiful McReynolds Hall studios. And joining me today are two guests. They are the two Democrats that represent uh, mid-Missouri. Their first guest today is somebody we've had on the show before. Kip Kendrick, I represent the 45th District. And the other guest is a newcomer to the politically speaking universe we have here today. Uh, Martha Stevens, and I represent the 46th District. Thank you all very much for coming today. As I said before, I have a soft spot in my heart for Columbia, and I always love getting Boone County area lawmakers from both parties on this show. Um, just for our listeners, um, if you could just describe what your district encompasses and, and which parts of, of Boone County. Uh, I'll start with you, Representative Stevens. Sure. Um, so the 46th district is all within city limits uh, here in Columbia, um, and it's mostly uh, the central and the west parts of Columbia and uh, south Columbia. And you, Representative Ken? Yeah. Uh, it also is uh, encompassed uh, completely within city limits. Uh, it's pretty much the eastern part of Columbia uh, north. So which one of you has the University of Missouri-Columbia? I have all the university except for the athletic facilities, which yes. are in Martha's district. Oh, my gosh. Correct. Are you, are you <laughs> happy about that? I, didn't, I don't know if you like Mizzou sports at all. So, <laughs> um, I, I will admit that I, I don't follow sports as much as I probably should. Yeah. But I am in a, a proud uh, graduate of Mizzou, so always rooting for them. Yeah. To be, to be candid, like I have not kept up on Mizzou sports as I should. They've not been very good, so I've kind of switched my allegiance to Northwestern's athletic teams where – I used to live in Evanston, Illinois. So we've had you on the show, as I mentioned before, Representative Kendrick. You can go back uh, to 2015 and could hear your life story. And we talk about Northeast Missouri politics ad nauseum. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum on this show. It's almost like a nervous tick. Um, but Representative Stevens, you, you're a freshman legislator. Uh, I want you, you to take this opportunity to tell people about yourself. Um, what you did before politics, and why you decided to run for the state house. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, my background's in social work, so I've been doing that for the past 10 years, um, worked for different non-for-profits, um, went back and got my master's in social work, and started to do more work on a policy level um, in different um, advocacy groups. Um, so I worked uh, here in Columbia as a community organizer for Planned Parenthood, and I, um, after that I went on to work 
uh, with the Missouri Medicaid Coalition, uh, fighting for Medicaid expansion here in Missouri. Um, so I've been doing that work in the past, um, and there was an opportunity when uh, Stephen Weber turned out to run, and I had some people encourage me, and I decided that I would um, run for office. And, and really, I, I see my background in advocacy and social work uh, really carries over, and I, I just happen to be an advocate at the state level, trying to pass good legislation to uh, lift up communities. Both of your districts have been historically Democratic, so whoever wins the uh, primary is typically the person that wins. You're lucky enough to where you didn't have a primary back in 2014, which I'm sure, in retrospect, uh, you're you're very joyous about. You actually did have to run in a pretty competitive primary against a countywide official. Kathy Richards, was that her name? Correct. I want to make sure I got her name right. I actually remember when she was elected public administrator. That that was an interesting race, and I do follow Boone County races, as you can tell. Sure. Um, It was interesting in in the sense that there have been other races before where, where a candidate tries to, I, I guess, showcase their, their social conservative bona fides, even when they're a Democrat. Occasionally successful uh, in 2006, Paul Quinn beat Yule Lawson. And you probably know Paul Quinn very well, Representative yeah, Kendrick, because he's from Monroe, Monroe County. Family but, friend. But I, I didn't really think that that was going to be very successful strategy in your particular contest because your district is primarily the city of Columbia. That's kind of the backdrop that I saw. What was it like for you to run against this established political figure who was trying to outflank you on on the issues I mentioned and probably some other things as well? Yeah, well, you know, um, I got into the race pretty early, um, so I feel like I had uh, a good head start when it came to uh, gathering endorsements um, and door knocking and fundraising. Um, I think I was I was definitely the more progressive candidate, and I didn't shy away from that on many different issues. Um, but you know, you know, it was a competitive race, and I did. But you know, I didn't take anything for granted, and uh, I raised money, and I knocked so many doors. And you and probably I talked think, to like a hundred media outlets, right? Yes, <laughs> I, yes, I, I tried to make myself as available. <laughs> Um, you know, that's I think that's part of our role as candidates and also elected officials uh, is to communicate with our, our constituents, but also with local media. So I didn't I didn't shy away from from that. Well, the 150 media outlets in Columbia are probably very glad for this. So when I was covering uh, the Boone County legislative delegation, I think it fluctuated between having three or four Democrats, depending on the year. Mm-hmm. There was obviously a time when the, the senator was a Democrat, so maybe it was even up to five. Now we're down to two because the the two seats, which are I would classify as reasonably reasonably competitive, um, I think believe it's the 44th and the 47th are now occupied by um, Republicans. So I'm just curious, though, what is the Boone County delegation like right now? Um, do you feel like it's pretty cohesive, even though it's your Democrats and the majority of people are Republicans? Do you occasionally clash on certain localized issues? I know this is kind of an insular line of questioning, but oftentimes the Boone County delegation is is pretty close-knit, and I'm, I'm interested to hear how it, how it is right now. I think, you know, when we, <clears throat> we've all really come together to be strong advocates for the university, I think that's something that we're all really committed to. Um, but there are a number of issues that we definitely don't agree on, though. <laughs> Representative Kendrick. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, echo the same thing. I mean, there, there are things we disagree on, uh, but there's also the unifying force of the university, which which is powerful for Boone County, um, and for you know the city of Columbia. There's also, you know, I mean, there's also other issues that we work on at the, at the city level. You know, we have a, a chamber of commerce event last night where you know they rolled out a legislative platform that was 
uh, you know, that wasn't partisan, that was that was very much, you know, putting uh, Columbia first, and, and it looked like, um, you know, something that uh, legislative platform that we could all uh, agree upon and work towards. And so I think, you know, having uh, a strong community, you know, strong community presence from outreach from constituents, uh, civic leaders that are all on the same page also helps us be unified. Well, that, that kind of leads me into kind of issues. And I'll, we'll talk about the University of Missouri-Columbia first. We're two years removed from the protests at Mizzou that, that ousted Tim Wolf and, and uh, Chancellor Lofton. Um, this is kind of a funny story, but when I was actually preparing to interview uh, Speaker Richardson for a previous podcast, I came into his office and uh, Moon Choi was standing there. And I'd never met him before, but I was like, yeah, you can talk to the speaker first because I am an UMSL employee and I don't want to upset the person who is uh, technically my <laughs> boss. That humorous anecdote aside, uh, one of the things that that brief encounter showcased to me, it seems that uh, President Choi is making a very concerted effort to uh, have a line of communication open with the, the legislature, which seems to be a vital thing um, post-2015. What's kind of your impressions of him? And more generally, how do you think the University of Columbia is standing right now in, in the General Assembly? President Choi came in and he's had to make a tremendous amount of difficult decisions uh, in, in short order as well. Um, you know, I. I'm confident that the decisions he, he's making are, are solid and uh, you know, he's good reasons for the decisions he's making. Um, you know, he's spending a lot of time in Jefferson City as well, as you said, uh, making uh, inroads and, and building relationships, which I think is important. Uh, it's important to rebuild trust inside the building. Um, you know, I'm also concerned, generally speaking, about the budget. Um, you know, I don't know. I, it's very possible university takes potential hits again this year because it's not a good budget picture. So, uh, you know, I hope he continues to build relationships. I hope we can rebuild the trust. I don't know if it's going to make a whole lot of difference as far as how the budget uh, looks this year. Representative Stevens, what's kind of your, your prognosis yeah. on that issue? Yeah, I think, um, I go Kip, we, um, but I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm excited about the new leadership that's come on board. I think that the fact that um, they spent a great deal of time down in Jeff City, like they did last year, and, and that they're trying to um, you know, form stronger relationships with legislators. Uh, I think that's really important. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this work that we do is a lot about relationship building. And so I think, you know, our job uh, in a lot of ways is, you know, to um, encourage our colleagues who aren't necessarily, uh, you know, in our community to let them know the value that the university brings statewide. Well, since you are on the, the House Budget Committee, you're actually now the ranking member. Congratulations on Thank that, you. by the way. Uh, I do want to talk about the, what you just alluded to, which is that last uh, year, higher education took a pretty sizable hit. I mean, I think that they were, they were cut like by, what, six, seven, eight percent? Right. And then the additional withholds day one in the budget year took them to 10 percent. I, I know this conversation is somewhat academic because it would require like a whole lot of things to happen. But my big takeaway from that was... As long as universities across the state are funded primarily with general revenue that governors can withhold on a whim, and it's not like a direct funding source, like a cigarette tax or some other things, we're going to have these fluctuations of higher education spending. And I've asked people, like, has there been any discussion about trying to figure out another way to fund universities? And I've gotten 
kind of a sense that, well, it would be a great idea, but no one is really talking about that seriously because it would not be without like a lot of, you know, controversy. I, I'm interested to hear your take on that because my gut feeling is that universities like University of Missouri Columbia are going to be funded pretty much the same way. But it seems like this is kind of a, a at least a, a opening of conversation to maybe think it should be funded some other way. What 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 do you think about that? Well, I always use something uh, that you said on the radio uh, in every line I use talking about university funding and that it uh, public higher education is the balance is the balancing um, you know sorry is the the balancing wheel basically for yes. for budgets. Um, and that's you know that's not just unique to Missouri. It happens all across this nation. Uh, there were a few years ago there was a discussion about a Missouri Promise uh, cigarette tax that would would have dedicated funding uh, to help pay for college higher education for for students. There hasn't been much of a discussion, you know, moving uh, to a different revenue stream outside of general revenue. And until we see, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. As long as we continue to use general revenue, anytime that there's cuts that have to be made higher education would be one of the first places that that you, we always go unfortunately um and it's it's not going to it's not going to stop yeah i i think it's either going to be that or there's going to have to just be a a general feeling that higher education should be more of a priority in that limited general revenue pie i know we're getting a little esoteric but this is actually a really important point when we're talking about uh, co uh, colleges and universities. I guess more generally, though, do you feel that University of Missouri-Columbia's reputation has improved among the legislature? I, I think that even, I would say even some Democrats were upset with how the leadership performed in 2015. And whether or not you agreed with the protests or not, um, I think that there was a feeling like there needed to be better leadership. What, what do you think the, the legislative uh, feeling is about Mizzou right now, Representative Stevens? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, I wasn't down there when, when this happened. Um, you know, last year, I think the new leadership that came in was making a, a good effort down in Jeff City talking to folks. Um, you know, I can't really speak to everyone's, um, you know, opinion about the university, but I, I think it's definitely improved. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think the general sense is that uh, relationships have improved. Uh, the trust in the university has improved, and that's uh, directly because of the leadership that we've had come on. I, some of the decisions that are being made now should have been made years ago, and I think uh, you know President Choi has um, and, and Chancellor Cartwright uh, have a clear directive that they need to make these difficult decisions. Now, I want to talk about a topic that you're each sponsoring. I'll start with you, <laughs> Representative Stevens. I read that you are sponsoring a bill that would make it I and, and if I'm if I'm describing this wrong obviously sure. correct me it involves needle exchanges mm -hmm. because my understanding right now is it is almost impossible to open a needle exchange in Missouri and it comes as there is this widespread use of heroin especially in places like the St. Louis area mm -hmm. so that's kind of the general thing I read if you want to just describe what it does and why you think it's needed yeah absolutely yeah, so um, excuse me. I sponsored a needle exchange bill this year um, to decriminalize um, these type of programs. Uh, Thirty-three other states have done this. Other conservative states have done this, um, and it's really um, a harm reduction uh, policy um, to really um, meet people where they are when it comes to addressing the opiate epidemic, um, and to make sure that they're as safe and as healthy as they can be while they're still using. 
Um, so needle exchange programs, um, have, there's a lot of really great evidence out there that shows that uh, people that uh, utilize them are five times more likely to receive treatment. Um, they're built, it can be a point of entry into treatment um, and when they access these programs. Um, I think there's also some really compelling evidence that's come out recently um, from the CDC. Um, there are seven states that have over 10 counties um, that are at high risk of an HIV outbreak, and uh, Missouri is one of those states. How big of a problem is it in Boone County? Like, I, I'm getting a sense that this is not just a situation that affects, like, the rural parts, because mm -hmm. we talk a lot about opioids in rural parts. I would imagine it's it's a problem everywhere. It's a problem everywhere. Um, I've talked to local law enforcement uh, over the interim um, about the opiate epidemics and, uh, you know, hearing their stories of what they see with people overdosing um, that they encounter. Um, you know, a, a good bill that passed last year is another um, harm reduction bill was the 911 Good Samaritan bill um, where folks can uh, call um, and they won't be, uh, if they have personal possession, they won't be charged uh, with that because that's the number one deterrent from people wanting to call for help to receive medical attention. Um, so I've had conversations with local law enforcement about that bill. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a problem in every community. I think, you know, drug addiction doesn't discriminate. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It does seem, and this is just my observation, it seems like Unlike, say, the 1980s, when there was a big emphasis on putting drug users in jail, and I'm talking about the crack epidemic, and I'm talking about primarily African-American mm -hmm. users, there has been kind of a consensus that that did not work, and there needs to be a treatment mm -hmm. um, pathway. Because the, the heroin epidemic is not just a white thing. It, it's also a big problem in the African-American community. Um, and it, it just seems like politicians from Republicans and Democrats are, are thinking we need to get these people a treatment. We don't need to put them in jail. Is that kind of what you're sensing too? Or is this just overly optimistic in like a quote unquote law and order state like Missouri? So I, I you know, I'm glad that you brought up, um, you know, the way we treated drug addiction because it is a disease and, and, and really we used to, we, I'm glad that we're moving away from a criminal lens into more of a public health lens. Um, but I think we have to know that in the past, um, those types of laws really targeted uh, communities of color. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're having the conversation, uh, you know, again, looking more through a public health lens, um, whether or not that's because now it's hitting white Americans. Um, I, yeah. you know, I can, I, I'm and glad I, that we're changed. that's a shift, but we have to also really acknowledge the way we used to criminalize it and, and how it destroyed uh, communities of color. Yeah, that, that has been my impulse to think, well, we're talking about this because suburban communities are dealing with heroin abuse. But the reason I don't make that argument is my former colleague, Dury Buscarin of St. Louis Public Radio pointed out that this is a really severe problem in, in the black community mm -hmm. in, in St. Louis. So I don't actually think it's, it's, it's a white problem. It's, it's everywhere whether it's getting more attention now because mm -hmm. it's happening more in, in suburban white areas, who, that that's up for people to decide. Sure. Um, what do you think the prognosis is of your bill passing? Because we had another guest on our show, Representative Holly Rader, a Republican from Sykeston, who is also interested mm -hmm. in, in this particular issue. It, it does seem like there's some bipartisan consensus, at least among some Republicans. Mm -hmm. well, how do you think this will fare this year? You know, um, I'm optimistic about it. Uh, I don't know if it will happen this year. But again, I think we have to go back to um, 
the fact that we're on this hot list that's been put out by the CDC, this it, there's a lot of collateral damage around um, um, the, you know, the, the consequences of, of this. And so um, I think, you know, I plan on talking to legislators who are in those counties um, and working with them and, um, you know, educating them about what's going on. And hopefully we'll, we'll um, get some buy-in that way. Um, you know, Dr. Randall Williams, who's the head um, of seeing, uh, Health and Senior Services, is on board with it. Um, so I think that that's really positive. He comes from North Carolina, where they passed this uh, similar bill in reaction to the opiate epidemic. Um, you know, in Indiana, uh, the governor at the time, now Vice President Pence, signed an executive order for a needle exchange uh, program, uh, and, rea and that was very reactionary to the crisis that they were experiencing. Um, after one rural town, uh, 219 folks got, were, were contracted with HIV. Um, so I think um, I'm optimistic about it. I think it's um, a good policy solution. There's good evidence behind it. And um, I, you know, the opiate epidemic is something that I think has a lot of bipartisan support. And um, you know, I plan on uh, you know, having a lot of discussions with colleagues about this one-on-one uh, -on -one this year. Yeah, Representative Kendrick, I was not at this press conference, but I believe that you were one of the people in your caucus that put forth like ethics related legislation. Before I guess what it was wrong, uh, if you could just explain what your particular bill does. And, and also, did you also introduce ethics legislation as well? No, but I'll be co-sponsoring and supporting our package. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't leaving anything that you had out, but uh, Representative Kendrick, please uh, continue. Yeah, uh, so there was, uh, there was a package of uh, 10 bills uh, signed by uh, 10 different sponsors, sponsored by 10 different uh, individuals within Democratic caucus. Uh, but these are, you know, not partisan bills. Uh, they're just, it's a comprehensive legislative uh, package of, of ethics reform. Uh, my bill in particular deals with uh, dark money. Um, and rather than going the, the typical route of, of trying to identify donors within um, 501c4s or, you know, other um, dark money organizations, uh, this is doing more to tie um, reporting, a con um, reporting of in-kind contributions or making sure that political activity is tracked so that the, so that the organizations are having to, uh, to submit when they support a candidate or, or coming out against a candidate so that there's more clarity on, um, more transparency and clarity on, on what these organizations are doing. So basically, let's say, um, I'm going to just make up a 501c4. The, the Jason Rosenbaum is awesome 501c4. If somebody gave me a million dollars and I spent a million dollars against Governor Greitens in his reelection, I would basically have to fill out a form with the MEC saying, Jason Rosenbaum is awesome, 501c4, spent a million dollars against Eric Greitens. That's right. It, it, it's tracking it. And, it, you know, I mean, you, what the scenario that you gave was, was very was very clear, very black and white, but there are often times uh, nuanced uh, ways that uh, that very these ads so. get right. These ads get constructed, so we want we want to make sure that uh, that there is uh, there is a clear path to the organization and who they're supporting or opposing, or or what ballot measure they may be supporting or opposing. At glad, the same time. I'm glad you mentioned ballot measures. This has been something that I've reported on, and I've reported on the governor's 501c4 extensively. But one of the things that I, I noticed from looking at the MEC reports is there's a lot of money from nonprofits that don't disclose their donors going into the minimum wage increase initiative, which I'm sure you know about. Um, I, actually, the Missouri Democratic Party endorsed that initiative. I guess my question is more general. Does it give you some discomfort 
that your party is endorsing a ballot initiative that has been funded with a great deal of quote unquote dark money? Or is this a situation where raising the minimum wage is a noble goal? And as the treasurer told me of that, they don't want to like have one arm tied behind their back when there could be quote unquote dark money groups against them. I, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, I mean, that, that's a good question. And it, um, you know, it has been uh, a, a long time since we've had any type of significant increase in, in the minimum wage. Uh, you know, I think that this is long overdue. Uh, this is not necessarily uh, a Democratic um, ballot measure either. I mean, I, you know, if you look at polling, Republicans in general are supportive. Uh, Republican voters, constituents are, are generally supportive of minimum wage increase as well. Um, you know, I think it is definitely something that the Democratic Party stands for, and, and the House caucus in particular is very much in, in support of a minimum wage increase. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, you do raise a, a good point, though. I mean, should we, uh, should we be concerned with um, with potential, you know, organizations that don't have um, that don't have uh, disclosed donors supporting it? Um, you know, I. I'm not going to necessarily weigh in because I because again it, it is free of the Democratic Party. Uh, Democratic Party is supporting it, and I support the minimum wage increase as well. You know, the um, you know I think it's a I think it's a reasonable uh, ballot initiative. I think that uh, the the twelve. Uh, it was 12, 12, 12 or thirteen dollars. Yeah, a, a little yeah. over twelve dollars. I think is uh, by twenty twenty four is 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 realistic and, and a good good start for us. And I do want to just make. A, a point here. It's not being funded completely right. by these nonprofits. There, there are a lot of disclosed donors that are going to this. And I made that very clear in the story that I wrote. And frankly, there are some conservative 501c4s, which are now pouring a lot of money to prevent right to work from being repealed. I'm sure, as Lou Price told me, it's very possible 501c4s could come out to try to stop raising the minimum wage. I guess my point, though, is that it does seem like while this is primarily a Republican thing going on, um, there are dark money groups that are going to help things that Democrats agree with. And also, I, I mean, they're helping Claire McCaskill, too. So yeah, it's, 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 I don't see it as a, a partisan issue either. I think it's kind of a bipartisan problem that, that's coming about. So I, I agree with you 100 percent. I think so. I, I think that, you know, as the rules are written currently, um, you know, allowing dark money in politics, you're going to continue to see it from both sides of the aisle. Uh, consistently hear Democrats supporting, uh, you know, greater transparency and, and shutting down of dark money organizations to, to bring greater light to it. That being said, I don't blame Democrats who, who, who don't speak out against dark money that, 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 is, that is going to help them as the rules are currently written. I mean, it's it's a problem. It w Amendment 2 was good in theory in the state of Missouri, what passed in 2016, and I think it will hopefully eventually be good in practice as well, but it will, without a doubt, lead to a, a greater proliferation of dark money in the state of Missouri. I, I think, it, and I've told this to other Republican guests, like, you, the legislature has to act to deal with the deficiencies of Amendment 2. I, that might sound like opinion, but it's more of like a fact. Yep. Like, it's not indisputed that people are using PACs now to get around those limits. It's not indisputed. It's not indisputed, is that even a word? I don't even know. 
I'm just on a rant here. Um, <laughs> it, it's not in dispute that 501c4s are being used. It's actually very easy for someone to donate to a 501c4 from their campaign committee. It's actually in state law that says you can do that. And also just the coordination um, statutes are very, very weak now. Like you all could go to a PAC that helps both of you say raise a million dollars for this PAC and that PAC helps you. So I don't know. I'm not I Republicans are not really typically keen on campaign donation limits. So it, it would seem like they may not want to do any of this, but if unless they want this system to be what it is, legislature has Yeah, to and, and I would say also I think um that brings up the ballot initiative of Clean Missouri, which really is going to seek to try to address some of these issues around um, campaigns, uh, limitations and these PACs, um, and then some other things around uh, addressing the extreme gerrymandering that we that we have in Missouri. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to stop myself there because I, I, I'm kind of a redistricting nerd. So because um, <laughs> I do want to talk about other issues besides redistricting. Um, what other issues do you think are going to be important for for your caucus? I, I want to. This is kind of like a free period where you get to talk about whatever you want. Uh, Representative Stevens. Oh sure. Um, well, I think as we've mentioned, uh, the, uh, there's many different bills that we've put together to address the uh, the opiate epidemic. Um, also around that, there's a lot of issues around women's health care um, when it comes to um, the um, pretty uh, devastating. Um, rates that we have of um, maternal mater, mer, uh, excuse me maternal mortality in Missouri we rank 42nd in the state uh, 50th being the worst um, and so I think there's a lot of bills that um, we're going to be putting together that will focus on that issue um, and a lot of that's investing in health care and public health um, which we um, sadly don't really do in our state um, and so I think the, those are some of the bills I think the ethics bills and of, uh, of course I think we'll continue to have the fight around uh, really standing up for um, for workers, and then also um, I think well, there's probably public schools. Um, I think we'll have that debate again around charter schools. Yeah, Representative Kennedy. Yeah, no, I was going to say I, I think a, a big debate this year is going to be education, public education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there also could be a big, uh, a large debate on taxes as well, and. Uh, you know, a, a tax bill uh, that's been filed to eventually phase out the income tax in the state of Missouri uh, seems to have gotten at least more um, media traction in, in, uh, than I originally thought and seems to have some traction maybe going into session, which which is very concerning. Although me. Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richards said he didn't want to, a brownback thing, which means like he doesn't want Missouri to become Kansas because he lives pretty close to Kansas and he's not all-powerful, obviously, but that was interesting that the Senate leadership wants to take it a bit slow with tax cuts, given that the tax cut that was passed, what, 2014? 14. 13, hasn't even gone into effect 100% yet, in no. my understanding. We will just be in the second year of that phase-in starting in FY19, and it's, um, from what I understand, the second-year phase-in is going to be above um, what we thought. The cost of it is going to be much more impactful than, than what was originally anticipated. Um, let's just kind of shift a little in the final minutes to politics. Um, so it's 2018. It's an election year. I, I would say, and maybe I'm wrong on this, I think both of you, if you choose to run for re-election, are in pretty good positions. You're in Democratic districts, and typically people who are in very Democratic districts try to help other Democrats win in more competitive districts. Um, you know, I've, I've asked Democratic people in the House, like, every cycle, is this going to be the year that you gain a lot of seats? It 
2016 was, I think you gained one seat because Keith English was an independent. It was replaced by a Democrat. I, I think in 14, you lost a few seats. Seven. Seven, Seven I think, yeah. 12, I think you lost three or four seats. Um, and 10 was obviously terrible, like 17 seats. So it hasn't been a good few election cycles, but um, you know your predecessor in the legislature, Stephen Weber, is everywhere. He's trying to get more people to run for office. Um, and it could be a Democratic year if Trump's approval ratings are low. So how do you think you guys are going to do? Do you think you'll add another member to your Boone County delegation and also other Democrats to, to help you guys out, Representative Stevens. Sure. Um, you know, I'm excited about 2018, um, but I'm also realistic. Um, I think that I really look at, uh, you know, getting out of the super minority as it's going to take some time. It's not going to just be 2018. And I think people need to realize that, um, that this is going to be a long term. I think that, uh, you know, we have to pass things like Clean Missouri so that we don't have such gerrymandered districts, um, because that, that really is responsible for a lot um, um, of you know, the makeup right now. Um, but also, you know, I'm really proud of the folks that are out there um, recruiting candidates. You know, that's one of the things that hurts us when we don't even have a Democratic candidate running uh, for a House seat. And so those numbers are up. We're raising money. I think people um, are um, a lot more engaged. I think some people after the 2018 elections um, realize that uh, it's really important to vote local and to get involved in state uh, in state races. Yeah, Representative Kendrick, there's no question that the 2011 House map was not good for Democrats. I, I'm not even going to try to make an argument that it was. Uh, but one of the things we've talked about before is you had a situation where, like the aforementioned Paul Quinn, lost in a district with Monroe County, I believe Rawls County and Pike County, which are three very historically Democratic counties. And the next cycle, I don't think the candidate that ran got any support. And then in 16, nobody ran in that area. So is it, is, it, is it a question of, you know, gerrymandering and bad maps, or is it also like you have to have candidates in these places that are well supported with money and organization? I'm sure it's a combination of both, <laughs> but you're, the map's not going to change until 2022. So mm -hmm. how does that come into play that just there hasn't been enough competition in these traditionally Democratic rural parts of the state? Right. You know, I mean, I think that if you um, – from talking with people who have, who have really studied the gerrymandering issue in the state of Missouri, I think that if we had different maps, you'd have, uh, you know, potential pickup of, of, of 10, how, uh, 10 House Democrats, um, you know, putting more districts in play. But you're right, it's not the, the total uh, reason why we've lost favor. I think part of it is, like, a lot of what um, what is message or what, uh, what Missourians believe is a message comes from the national level beamed in through the television. Uh, I think a lot of that... Um, you know, doesn't necessarily play well in rural Missouri. Uh, but as you mentioned, it's been kind of a, a crumbling of uh, the Democratic Party's infrastructure in, in rural Missouri across the, not just rural Missouri, everywhere uh, in the state. And I'm, I'm proud of what Stephen Weber has done. You know, Stephen's a good friend um, and he has, uh, he's been everywhere. Uh, he is, you know, I, I was up in Monroe County, uh, Monroe City, this summer, and you know, at that point, they said he'd been there. Someone from the party had been there twice already uh, that year, and that was, you know, that was um, unheard of. They hadn't been there in probably, <laughs> probably the ten years prior to that. Really. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. Again, Monroe County was Democratic in 2006, 2008, and 2010, um, and the fact that there was no 
effort to build up the organization in a place like that are Pike County, or other parts of Northeast Missouri or Southeast Missouri. Um, it seems like malpractice, and it it seems like I obviously uh, now Chairman Weber realizes that because he's going to these places, he's trying to rev up Democrats that are still there, and and trying to build an organization. This is kind of an off the wall question that I want to ask both of you. I know you're both Democrats, but do you think that there are some Republican colleagues that wish they had a smaller majority because they would have it'd be easier to control? Can, I, I'm going to go with you, Representative. That? Yeah, I, yeah I, absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't put uh, the speaker or anybody else on the spot, uh, and I definitely don't want to speak for them. But I imagine, you know, I imagine that there are a few members who wish there were, uh, at times, wish there were fewer members because it would be easier to control. It's also, and not just from that, um, I, I think that we see some good legislation that moves, that gets going down the tracks. Uh, then they have such a large supermajority that bad amendments get out of these bills. They they become bad bills, but they are so far down the track you can't you can't take them off, right? I mean they're they're going to pass, they're going to go into law, and it's going to be bad legislation. I feel like when you have uh you know if you had a stronger Democratic voice, if you had a closer not necessarily equal, I don't think Democrats want that. I think they'd still like ninety five plus, right? But are but, you are you'd like to have one hundred and seventeen members? But this is <laughs> right. Illinois, unfortunately. Right. Continue. But but you know I, I think that they would like. Um, I think it would be best for the legislative process if we had a stronger voice. I think it'd be better for Missouri as a whole, even even for conservatives. I think that um, by by being able to, to to keep some bad amendments getting on good pieces of legislation, it would help uh, in the long run protect us from lawsuits and, and cost, costly lawsuits to the state, but also making sure that we have. We have good legislation and hopefully stay away from embarrassing topics that, that make our state look backwards at times. And we've seen some of those. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen some issues that have come up that, that, are, that are very problematic on a national level and, and trying to recruit businesses and, and young people to stay in the state. What's Absolutely. your thoughts on this, Representative? Yeah, I think, well, I think what Kip makes some great points about it. Um, I'm, I'm certainly, I think... Um, that there are probably some Republicans that <laughs> maybe want, I think there might be too many Republicans down there. I don't know. I can't speak for other folks, but um, I think um, that's probably certainly the case. I'm sure, you know, I think at times, um, you know, their party is so big and, you know, they have a conservative caucus and that at times they um, probably, um, you know, t- take votes on things that they maybe don't want to have to take votes on. Uh, to so I think that that probably happens sometimes, but also yeah, I mean the, there have been some really extreme bills um, that don't reflect uh, well on Missouri. Um, so you know, votes around personhood, um, these anti-trans um, bills around bathroom bills and things like that. Yeah. I, I think the the last area of politics I want to talk about is um, it is not only legislators who are running; it's two Democratic statewide officials, uh, Claire McCaskill and Nicole Galloway, and. I, I kind of believe that their their fates are tied together. If Claire McCaskill loses, I think it's going to be difficult for Auditor Galloway to win. She might win anyways. I could be surprised. But that's the conventional wisdom. And kind of what I see the, the map for them to win is they have to have very strong turnout in St. Louis, Kansas City, and in Columbia, which has become more competitive but still has a lot of Democratic voters. They don't necessarily have to win rural Missouri, but they have to at least compete there. They got to get 35, 40 percent in some of those counties. And then some of the suburbs, they have to either win or again compete. It, 
it's a difficult pathway. It was a lot easier in 2006 for Claire McCaskill to do it than it is now. Um, we're in Columbia right now. Boone County, as I mentioned, has become more competitive. How important do you think this area is for someone like McCaskill or Galloway to get another term? I'll start with you, Representative Stevens. Um, you know, I think I have a lot of confidence in both of those campaigns. Um, I, I'm optimistic about this year. I think they both have great messages. Um, uh, Auditor Galloway has been such a strong and really uh, fair um, statewide auditor. I mean, she's a, she is so qualified for that position with her background. Um, and I think that the results are really there for her, um, you know, what, what she can go out to all communities and talk about uh, her record. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, Boone County, uh, you know, we are going to work hard to turn people out to vote because um, it's about getting folks out to, to vote, uh, you know, on up and down the ballot for Democrats. And what's your what's your thought on this, Representative Kendrick? Yeah, and I agree. I mean, it's important that we have a strong turnout here in Columbia. But as you mentioned, we can't be we Democrats can't be performing at 10, 12, 15 percent in rural Missouri and expect to uh, for a Democrat to win a statewide uh, office. Uh, it, it's just not possible. So, I mean, we have to have we have to have strong turnout in our urban areas, suburban areas. But but rural Missouri, uh, we need to make sure that we're competitive. Uh, and I think that's I think that's been part of the focus of what Stephen's been doing is, is making sure that we're rebuilding trust and and rebuilding some of the infrastructure in, in rural areas. Well, I want to thank both of you for this this great conversation. I have to drive back to St. Louis right now, so I'm going to leave very quickly. But for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org, also kbia.org. Thank you very much, KBIA, for letting me interlope in your studios. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web, Representative Stevens? Sure. It's Martha for Mo. And Representative Kendrick? Kip underscore Kendrick. If you search Kip Kendrick, there's not too many of us out there. Underscore is important. <laughs>